The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I want to start this morning with a little survey. How many of you in the past month have been to Starbucks? Raise your hand. All right, a fair amount. How many of you have been to Starbucks in the past week? In the past uh, 24 hours? Okay, just me. All right, good, 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 good. Um, Starbucks is really an amazing story. Um, well, let me ask one more question. Anyone here not heard of Starbucks? Anyone here? You laugh. Has anyone legitimately never heard of Starbucks? Okay. It's amazing how it has become a household term, how everybody knows about it. It's an amazing story. Um, it started in 1971 by three teachers in Pike's Place, a, a famous market in Seattle, Washington. And at first, they actually didn't even offer coffee for you to drink. They only offered coffee beans. But the, uh, the company took off right away. And today, uh, there is more than 21,000 stores in over 65 countries. Um, it is a phenomenal growth rate. They average uh, opening over 488 stores a year. Uh, in the past 47 years or whatever that might be, which is more than one store a day uh, since they first started. Since 1987, they've averaged over two stores a day opening up um, wherever they wherever they are planting, planting these stores. In Santa Fe Springs, California, there are over 560 Starbucks within a 25-mile radius. In 2012, Starbucks had... Over 137,000 employees, that is twice the population of Greenland. Starbucks is taking over the world. Watch out. How did Starbucks do this? How did Starbucks take control of the coffee market? How did they spread this, this amazing goodness throughout the entire world? Well, if you look at the mission statement, it's actually quite simple. The Starbucks mission statement says this, and I think I have it up here. It is. It says this. Can you see that behind all the words? Kind of. The Starbucks mission statement is this. To inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. To inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. You know, God has a mission for this world, a far greater mission than the mission of Starbucks, a mission to bring the triumph of his kingdom of redemption over the entire world. And while his goal might be different than that of Starbucks, surprisingly, his method is very similar. God brings his kingdom of redemption over the entire world. One person at a time, one cup at a time, one neighborhood at a time. Today, we're going to look at the triumph of the gospel. If you would please open to Acts chapter 16. Uh, This is starting our series in Philippians. We're going to see how Paul is introduced to the church in Philippi. Um, The apostle Paul uh, is going on a journey to Philippi for the first time. And he's actually on his second missionary journey. And we actually have a map here. Um, if you can put up that map. And so Paul, let me get my big head out of the way. So Paul is down here and there's the, 
the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, and they make some decisions. And so he comes to some of the churches that he planted on his first missionary journey, and he comes to them and he reports uh, what they have said. And so this is the trail that he takes. And then God calls him, which we'll read about today. God calls him to come to Macedonia. And he comes to Macedonia to the city of Philippi. This is the first introduction of the gospel into Europe. And so this is what we are going to look at today. And so look again at Acts 16. Uh, we are going to read verses 9 through 40. We have a lot to come to cover. There is there is so much treasure there to to mine out. And so um, we're going to take take this in pieces and read a little bit of a time at a time. I got to get my word straight today. We'll read a little bit at a time and work our way through it because there is so much good stuff here. So let's start Acts 16, page 925 in the Red Bible, page 1370 in the Children's Bible. We'll start in verse 9 and read through verse 12, and then we'll pray and continue from there. Acts 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Tros, he made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn to uh, Philippi and we look upon this city and we look upon how your gospel triumphs over this city, God, may we be reminded of the power of Christ, not only in our lives personally, but also over our city. May we rest in you. May we look to you. May we delight in you as your victory is continuing forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About seven years, Trish and I moved to Green Bay. And when you move to a new city, you see all of the beautiful things. You see Bay Beach. You see the wildlife sanctuary. You see the amusement park. You, you see Lambeau Field. You see Al's Hamburger Shop downtown. And these are great blessings to the city of Green Bay. And you look at the city of Green Bay, and it is a beautiful place to be. And we fell in love with the city of Green Bay. And we still very much love the city of Green Bay, but the honeymoon has run its course. As you watch the news, you can recognize there is much wrong with the city. There is much segregation among the races. There is, uh, there is alcoholism that is rampant. It's, it amazed us how many DWIs there are, how many DWI deaths there are. As we got involved in our church family, which was a great church family, we were able to see how many marriages were falling apart, how many people avoided one another on Sunday mornings, how many neighbors didn't even know one another. And so as we started to see Green Bay for all that she is, we started to realize that this is a very broken place. And as you look at it, you can be overwhelmed by all that there is to do. But as we look at our city, as we look at our neighborhoods, as we even look at our house, although we could be overwhelmed by that, all that needs to be done, 
we're reminded here of God's mission to bring forth his triumphant redemption into all things. And that he does this one person at a time, one cup at a time, one community at a time. This is God's strategy for the city of Philippi. And it's God's strategy for Green Bay. As we look in the in Acts 16, we're going to see that God's gospel triumphs over very different people. But in the end, it transforms the city of Philippi. Let's start by looking at this first case. We see the gospel triumphs over the religious. Look in verse 13 with me. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. In order to open up a local synagogue, there needed to be a quorum of Israelites there to open it up. Evidently, in Philippi, that quorum didn't exist. And so there were women who gathered together to pray to the Lord on the Sabbath day. These were God-fearing women, women who believed in the Lord God, women who had turned away from the polytheism that was surrounding them, and they believed in the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, the Lord God. They were worshipers of God. And so Paul comes to them. And he has a spiritual conversation with them. And he opens the word to them. And he explains how Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. That he is the ultimate sacrifice and the final sacrifice for our sins. That he is raised from the dead to give us new life. And that his kingdom is triumphing over the entire world. And so Paul, with his intellect, gives good reason as to why Christ is the king. Why this dominion of redemption is coming. And yet we read here. In verse 14, that it is the Lord that opened her heart. As a God-fearer, as a religious woman, God had prepared Lydia to hear the message of the gospel. And she trusted in Christ as her Savior. We also see here that there are ramifications for the triumph of the gospel. And we're going to see this as we walk throughout this passage, that whenever the gospel conquers new territory, things happen. Here we see the fruit of the gospel in Lydia's life. We read in verse 15, it says, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We see in this verse just two implications of the gospel, two ramifications of the gospel, how the gospel is bearing fruit in Lydia's life. First, we see there is a new passion in her life. Lydia was a seller of purple. That means she loved beautiful things. It would be like someone owning a high-end boutique in Manhattan, New York. And yet here she has found the most beautiful of all things. She has found her Savior. She has found Christ. And so she urges Paul and Silas to come to her house that she might not only thank them for sharing this message, but hear more about this Savior. You see, although she loved beautiful things, she knew that this was the most beautiful of all things. And she took it to her household and applied the sign of the covenant to her whole family. 
when the gospel triumphs over our hearts. It gives us a new passion, a greater passion than all other passions, a passion for Christ. It makes all of our other passions become dim. You know, one of my favorite things to do when I go camping is to look up and see how brilliant the starts out, stars are, how beautiful they are. They, they shine just so majestically in the sky. And yet when the sun comes up in the morning, the stars fade away. And it's not because the stars have gone around to another side of the earth or that they have hid. It's because the brilliance of the sun makes the stars fade in comparison. How do we know that the sun has become preeminent in our lives? The son of God. It's when our passions fade. When treasuring Christ and following Christ and knowing Christ and growing in Christ becomes what is most important in our life. You know, I think through my time here and even in my own experience, this has been evidenced by Sunday morning transformation. You know, if Christ is not your supreme passion in life, church is an obstacle to your happiness. Church is an obstacle to going and doing what is a greater passion in your life. But as the son is exalted in our life, he becomes our supreme passion. And church doesn't just become an obstacle to our happiness. It becomes a venue of our happiness, a place that we come to worship and enjoy and delight in the thing that we most cherish, Christ. And so we see one ramification of the gospel is there is a new supreme passion in our life. Secondly, we see a ramification of the gospel for Lydia is that she becomes hospitable. Lydia here opens up her house to Paul and Silas. But what is even more evident later is that she sees her house as a ministry center. In the last verse of this chapter, we see Paul and Silas visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The church And the triumph of the gospel throughout human history has not primarily been under a steeple, but it has been in a living room, in a kitchen, in a house. Christ's ministry in the gospels often happens in a person's home. We see God extend his territory throughout acts in people's homes. Even today with community groups and small groups, we see the gospel going forth in homes. It's a reminder to us that the kingdom of God is not just extended in a church building, but it is extended in our house. It's extended in our kitchen. It's extended around our dining room table. One of the most hospitable people I know is a single woman who doesn't have a lot of money, who suffers with chronic pain, who does not sleep much, who would confess that she is a moody person. She's a woman that lives in a small apartment. And yet it is her joy to show hospitality to others. Not because she has a great kitchen. Not because she has the best recipes. But because she has a great savior. Who was hospitable to her. Who took her in while she was a stranger. And her desire is to show that love to other people. You know, when I think of my friend, it makes all of my excuses 
for being inhospitable, quite silly. You know, we have so many reasons to not be hospitable, don't we? I mean, we have our family in, but to have those that do not know us that well or those that are our neighbors, we don't do that good of a job at welcoming those in our house. And we have so many reasons. We're too busy. We're too poor. We live too far away. We're too moody. We're too scared. Our house is too messy. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, but there's a phrase that has that circulates a lot in the South that says cleanliness is next to godliness. But the reality is that cleanliness often opposes godliness. You see, we're so consumed with having the perfect house, the right house, the clean house before we have anybody over. And if we have to prepare to the extent of having everything spick and span, then we'll miss our opportunity to be in front row seats as the kingdom of God moves forward. It is countercultural in Northeast Wisconsin to open your home to anyone besides your family. And yet God calls us to see our house as a center for ministry to those whom he loves and he's pursuing. And so we see the gospel triumphs over religious people like Lydia, giving them a new passion for Christ, a new zeal to show hospitality towards all in order that God might bring redemption into their life. We also see the gospel triumphs over the evil. Verse 16, we read, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Let's pause there for a second. The term used here for a good girl would indicate this. This is a a girl between the ages of 10 and 14 years old. So think of a middle school girl who is possessed by an evil spirit and has the ability to tell people's fortunes, okay? What we learn here already is that if there is a miraculous thing, it doesn't mean that it's a God thing, right? She has this miraculous power to tell the fortune of others, But it's not from God. It is from an evil spirit. Her owners exploited her. She was probably sold as a slave because her parents didn't want her. And they made a profit off of her. Verse 17 continues. She followed Paul and us crying out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You know, it's amazing that she would say this. She is a fortune teller. She knows things that other peoples do not know. And she knows that these men are ministers of the gospel, that they know the Most High God and that they are proclaiming the true way of salvation. And she she, she declares day after day that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And you wonder as you look at this text, is she announcing them or is she denouncing them? Is this a proclamation of good news or bad news for her? And as I think as we look at this passage and we look at our own hearts, we can say it's both. That she is announcing them because her heart longs for a Savior, but she is denouncing them because she knows that she does not want any other Lord in her life but herself. But she makes this declaration. Verse 18, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
And they came out that very hour. You know, it's so interesting that many days had gone by. That, that Paul didn't on the first day when he was first annoyed, cast the demon out. And as I thought about this and I wondered, why did Paul wait so many days to cast the demon out of this girl? I wonder, why did he just do it the first day? And I think it's because Paul didn't realize that the gospel was for her. That the gospel was even for a woman who had been possessed by wickedness and evil. Paul didn't realize that the gospel triumph was greater than he could even imagine. That it could take over anybody, even a junior high, evil-possessed girl. We see the ramifications of this. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. I.e. ruining our financial income. Verse 21. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. The people were so angry that the gospel had triumphed over this slave girl. This is a reminder to us that while the gospel is good news for the humble The gospel is not good news for everyone. As the gospel transforms lives and transforms a city, it disrupts our pattern of behavior. It unseats our idols. The gospel is good news to many, but it is bad news to some. When I first became a Christian, I started dating a girl. And as our relationship went on, I realized that our relationship was not honoring to God. And after praying about it, realized that I shouldn't be in this relationship. And so I told the girl that I had to break up with her because this was not honoring to God. And and as Christ was becoming supreme in my heart, I realized that this relationship was keeping me from worshiping him. See, the gospel was becoming better news to me, but it had become bad news to her. Because she lost her boyfriend. She lost her sense of value. The gospel is triumphant. And the gospel has ramifications. Not all of those ramifications are positive. Some of them are very painful. Some of us, some of them cause us to lose our freedom. If you look at Paul, it caused them to be beatenly, brutally beaten. To be thrown into jail. And for Christ, it even caused him his life. And so we see the gospel triumphs over religious. It triumphs over evil. It even triumphs over the cruel. Verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely or securely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let's pause here to just get a profile of the Philippian jailer. When you are going out to hire hire someone to run a jail, 
you're not going out to hire Mr. Rogers, right? You're not going to hire someone who is tenderhearted and compassionate. Most likely, he is an ex-military guy. He's a guy who's okay in inflicting pain on other people. We see in this passage that he goes above and beyond what the people ask him to do. He's told to keep them securely. But here we see he keeps them in the inner prison. This would have been the furthest away from the daylight. This would have been the stinkiest and the worst part of the prison. Not only that, we read that he fastened their feet in stocks. The stocks, you know, we think of these stocks as handcuffs for the feet with a chain in between. But these stocks would have been a torture device that would have stretched them out and caused pain and suffering. And so here are Paul and Silas. They've just been beating. They are dripping with blood. They have broken bones. And he not only doesn't have compassion on them, but he compounds their misery by putting them in the worst part of prison and putting them in stocks to torture them. And here we see Paul and Silas's reaction. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What an amazing response. How would, how would you respond if you followed God's calling on your life and as a result you were beaten, imprisoned, and tortured? Would you respond with singing and rejoicing? I mean, just earlier we sang the song. We said, when I'm found in the desert place, when I walk through the wilderness, when the darkness closes in on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. How can it be that a Christian can sing and rejoice in the midst of suffering? Well, we see it throughout the scriptures, but we see it in in, in a very popular place in Psalm 23. When King David writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. In the Bible, God never promises that you will not go through the valley of the shadow of death. But God promises that you will never go through the valley of the shadow of death alone. That he is your great comforter. That he goes with you no matter where you go to the very end of the age. And because of God's presence with Paul and with Silas, they can rejoice and they can delight. Because although they are in prison, they have been freed from their sins. Although they are in chains, they have a life in Christ. Verse 25 continues. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The punishment for the jailer, if any prisoner escaped, would be death. And because this was a culture 
that was a culture of deep shame. He preferred to die privately instead of publicly where his family would be shamed. And so he drew his sword to kill himself because he had assumed since the prison doors were open that the prisoners had escaped. And then we read verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice. Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. What an amazing story. I mean, if you were in that jail, wouldn't you run? I mean, you would run to get your freedom, but, but maybe even just run to pay back the guard. I mean, he had beaten you. He had tortured you. And you would have known that if you ran, he would have been put to death. What a great payback for what he had done to you. And yet Paul and Silas, moved by the compassion of Christ, stays Because they were not in the business of bringing death, but bringing life. Verse 29, the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer is undone. He is brought to his knees. And with trembling, And fear asks the question, what must I do to be saved? What happened in his heart? What caused him to ask this question? It wasn't like Lydia. It wasn't that Paul had explained the scriptures to him. It was the power of God. The power of God to shake a prison to the right amount that the doors were open and the shackles fell off. But also the power of God to take two men who were beaten, who were tortured, who were bloodied, but who could sing of the great hope that they had in God. All of us in our life, at some point, when we come to the end of our rope, must ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And you see, even in that question, there is an emphasis. What must I do to be saved? Our assumption is that we have to clean our life up, that we have to give a bunch of money away, that we have to help the poor, that we have to do all of these things in order to be saved. But this is never the answer. Look at Paul's answer. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. To be saved, it is not what you do, but believing in what Christ has already done for you. That Christ has regarded your helpless estate and has shed his own blood for your soul. And so we see the gospel overtakes this cruel and indifferent man. And then we see the ramifications of it again. Verse 32, it says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. There are three ramifications of the gospel, of the triumph of the gospel that we see here in his life. And I'll try to go through it quickly. But first we see this, that a personal faith has become a public faith. 
not out of obligation, but out of great joy. He wants to go and share the good news with his family. Personal faith is not supposed to be a private faith, but personal faith is supposed to be a public faith. That we see the beauty of the gospel, the joy of the gospel, and we delight to share it with others. And so we see that one ramification is that his personal faith becomes a public faith. Secondly, we see compassion. Remember, this is probably an ex-military guy who has, done, who has dealt with a lot of ruthless individuals. And yet here in verse 33, we read that he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And then verse 34, he brought them up into his house and set food before them. His heart was softened to care for others. The gospel of God's great compassion towards him made him compassionate towards others. Have you ever known the great compassion of God for Christ in you? Have you seen how much he loves you and cares for you and delights in you? How much he tenderly cares for you all the days of your life? Has God's compassion moved you towards compassion, towards those who are parentless, those who are hurting? Maybe even like Paul and Silas, has it moved you towards compassion, towards your enemy? This is the fruit of the gospel. Thirdly, we see joy. It says, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. The gospel gives us a great joy. It gives gives us a supernatural joy. It gives us an unshakable joy. You look at Paul and Silas and they are in prison in the most horrible of situations. And yet there is this great joy that they can sing to God. You know, I'm so excited to dive into Philippians because this is one of Paul's major emphasis is joy. And the question is, how can we have joy in all situations of life, whether we are in good times or whether we are in bad times? And the answer is we get joy not by looking to get joy, but by looking to Christ. And as we look to Christ, joy overflows in our heart. And we see this in the Philippian jailer's life. And so we see the gospel triumphs over the religious, that it triumphs over evil, that it even triumphs over the cruel hearted. And finally, we see the gospel triumphs over the city. Verse 35, it says, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned us, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prisons. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. You know, it's very interesting here Well, Paul is a Roman citizen, and the Roman citizens are afforded certain liberties that other citizens don't have. They have certain privileges. They are to be dealt with respectfully and honorably. And yet, what is so fascinating is that Paul does not pull out his Roman citizenship card when he's being beaten. He doesn't pull out his Roman citizenship card when he is in prison. He waits until now. He waits until now to say, whoa, 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 I'm a Roman citizen. And as we'll see, the magistrates respond with fear and respect and loyalty. 
And we look at this and we wonder, why did Paul wait? Why did he wait till after all of his suffering to mention, oh yeah, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. He could have averted so much pain and suffering if he would have started with that. Why did he wait until now? Well, we see that Paul is extremely strategic. There's a couple of reasons why Paul probably waited. One would have been for because he cared about social justice. He cared that he would be treated like anybody else. It's also probably because he wanted to identify with the future of the Philippian church. He would have known that the Philippian church would have undergone suffering, undergone persecution, and he wanted them to know that their joy was not contingent on their freedom, but it was contingent upon Christ. But I think the main reason why Paul waited to mention his Roman citizenship was because he wanted to be went, because he wanted to give credibility to the gospel. You see, when he mentioned his Roman citizenship, he didn't only vindicate himself; he vindicated his message. He vindicated the good news of Christ. Paul being in prison was a shameful thing. If he would have been just simply kicked out of the city without any announcement, the gospel would have been shamed. But he wanted the gospel to be vindicated. He wanted the church to have space to grow, so people would give them room. It continues in verse 38. We read, The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We see many ramifications to the gospel. But what we see here as one of the major ramifications of the triumph of the gospel is the church of Philippi. The church flourishes in the midst of suffering. As we dig into the letter of Philippians, we'll see that it is the only the only letter that Paul writes to a church where there's nothing ominently wrong. He's not writing to rebuke them or correct their theology. He's writing to encourage them. And we see the fruit of the gospel in Philippi is a Philippian church that although they suffer, although they are persecuted, they are joyful and they are obedient and they are faithful to God. And so we see that the gospel goes forth and the ramification is the people of God is, is, are established. You know, it's so interesting as we look back over Acts 16, I know we covered a lot today. It was hard to fit it in. But as we look over Acts 16, there are, there are a couple of things that we need to take note of that are very important. The first is this. The gospel is triumphant in many different ways. You know, you look at Lydia. It was simply a spiritual conversation. And the Lord opened her heart. You look at the slave girl, the demon-possessed girl. It was an exorcism. You look at the Philippian jailer, and it was the power of God to shake the earth, but also to shake these men to have joy in the midst of suffering. And so one thing we see as we look over this is that God triumphs his gospel in many different ways. The second thing we see is this, is that the gospel is triumphant over many different types of people. Tim Keller chronicles this, and he mentions how different these people are. They're different racially. One is Asian, the the Lydia, the seller of purple. One is Greek, the slave girl. One is Roman, the Philippian jailer. They're very diverse economically. 
Lydia would have been an upper class person selling purple for the rich. Then there was the lower class, the slave girl. And then there was the middle class, the Roman soldier. Socially, they were very different. One was a social insider. One was a social outsider. And one was kind of in the middle. Spiritually, they were very different. One was open to it. Lydia was open to what Paul had to say. One was hostile towards it. And the demon-possessed girl. And one was just indifferent towards it. But we also see they're very different in their personalities. One was gentle. One was brutal. (laughs) One was mental. And so these are very different people. They're as different as they could possibly be. And what we see is that there is no type for Christians. There is no Christian type person, but the gospel is for all people and that all people need the gospel. It is not just for the poor. It is not just for the rich. It is not just for the white. It is not just for the black. It is not just for the Americans. It is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone and everyone needs the gospel. They need the love and glory of Christ in their life. There is no religion as culturally diverse as Christianity. Every world religion is usually encapsulated in one or two continents, but Christianity is spread throughout the world. Roughly 20% of Christians are in Africa, 20% in Latin America, 20% in Asia, 20% in Europe, and 20% in North America. There is no other religion that is this well distributed because Christianity is truth and it applies to all people. The gospel is for everyone. Third, finally, we see this. The diverse group in Acts 16 tells us that the gospel is the single most unifying force in the entire world. It's amazing to see how the gospel unifies these people. As we look at the final verse, we see Paul and Silas go and visit Lydia's house. And in Lydia's house are the Christians. People gather together to worship this demon-possessed girl, the Philippian jailer, this Lydia, the seller of purple. Three people who are so extremely diverse, who would never be under the same roof, are here together worshiping God. And not only are they called Christians here, but they are called brothers. And their sisters, nothing could have brought them together except the triumph of the gospel. Let me end with this. There is a a very old prayer. It is a Jewish prayer that Jewish men used to pray every morning. And to be honest, it's a horrible prayer. And what they used to pray was this. They would say, Lord, thank you. I'm not a woman, a slave. Or a Gentile. In other words, thank you, I'm not everyone who's here. All right? Thank you, I'm not a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. And yet this is exactly who God uses to plant his church in Philippi. Through the triumph of the gospel. I am so excited to dig into the book of Philippians. My hope and prayer is that through Philippians, the gospel would triumph further in Green Bay, that more marriages, more homes, more people would come to know Christ, that it would triumph one person at a time, one cup at a time, one neighborhood at a time. I'm so excited to see how the gospel will triumph in Green Bay, but I'm also so excited to see how the gospel will triumph in my own heart. 
There is so much uncharted territory, so many areas that I have kept off limits to God that I pray that he will graciously and gently expose and apply the love and joy of Christ to that the gospel might liberate my heart and your heart to know more and more the beauty of Christ and that the beauty of Christ might lead us to an unexplainable, untouchable, miraculous joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that the gospel is not just for Israel, but that you kept pressing Paul further, out to Macedonia, out to Philippi, out to Europe, and even across the sea to America, that we might know the glory of the gospel. We thank you that the gospel is triumphant because you are a God greater than your messengers. You are a God that opens people's hearts and shows them the beauty and majesty of your love through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we turn to Philippians this semester, God, pray that we would be surprised by joy, that we would have this unexplainable, overwhelming joy in our life because Christ has become more preeminent in our hearts. Lord, we need your help for this, and we pray that you would do this in our hard hearts, that you would soften us and remind us of how much you love for us. Lord, as we turn to your table, an ultimate reminder of your love, God, pray you would set these elements apart in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, that they would not just be bread and juice, but they would be a reminder that the gospel is triumphant.